Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF Podcast. Uh, when you're a writer and you're serious about being a writer, you read, you study the work of other authors you admire, and while you might not necessarily copy what they do, you learn, you grow. And if you're a musician, same thing. There are just people whose work you keep returning to, and even if the way that they do something is not necessarily the voice that you want to emulate, the thing that they do so well expands your concept about what's possible, what's achievable, the breadth of the vocabulary of the form. So I'm someone who hosts podcasts, and with that principle in mind, I listen to a bunch of podcasts on a range of topics. Food actually features pretty heavily, as does cinema, urbanism, politics, culture, and a bit of comedy. But of course, there are tech podcasts in there as well. It's a nice mix of stuff from a few different places around the world, and there are some people and some formats that I really admire. I dip in and out of them depending on mood and how busy I am doing other stuff that requires my ears and my concentration, but a lot of what ends up here as part of the MTF podcast is at least partly inspired by my daily listening. Now, to be clear, there are very few podcasts that I always listen to, but one that I never miss is called Reset. It's part of the Vox Media Network. It's ostensibly about technology, though quite often there's a deeper theme lying underneath the tech. They've covered medical research, privacy and security, people getting married in a game called Animal Crossing, sample libraries, political ads on streaming services, lots about the scientific and tech dimensions of the COVID-19 pandemic, and lots more. And so one of the reasons I love this show is that it's presented by someone who mixes intelligence, curiosity, humour and humanity into unpacking some of the most important stories around right now. And so I invited her to join me for a chat. From what sounds like a palatial recording studio in New York, but which in true podcast style kind of isn't, this is Achiel Durham-Ross. Enjoy. Ariel Dumras, thank you so much for joining us for the MTF podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. So um, I, I have a, a bunch of podcasts that I kind of listen to on and off, but yours is the one that I don't actually miss. It's a perfect length. It's a dog walk. It's a, you know, it's, it's exactly right. But it's also, it's very much my sort of thing. So yeah, thank you for that. Oh, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you know, right now, podcasting is going through a little bit of a, of a struggle, um, because people aren't commuting the way that they, they were before, which is largely when folks were listening to podcasts. And so every listener counts at this point. So I appreciate that. So where are you right now? I am in uh, my bedroom closet, uh, which is located in Brooklyn in New York City. And how are things looking? Uh, I mean, currently, <laughs> if you want to take it very literally, I'm looking at a blazer. And so they're looking very stylish. Um, but, but if you were to go and look out the window, is there panic in the streets or is, uh... Oh, well, no, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of quiet for New York City, for Brooklyn. You know, there aren't as many people on the streets as there used to be and people are wearing masks and, um, I mean, the people that you see on the street are largely either going to pick up some food at, at a restaurant nearby. Maybe they're going grocery shopping or they're walking their dogs, um, which all seem like very mundane tasks now, 
Um, but but our our sort of you know people are taking a risk every time they venture outside, or or some of them feel like they are. Yeah. Um, you know the the risks of actually getting coronavirus in, from the outside air and just walking around is very very low. But um, I think it, it just it feels eerie. It feels strange. You know I I went outside recently while I was walking my dog and I didn't I wasn't wearing a mask and I because I forgot. Right. And it's not like it's it's the law right now to wear a mask if you're just outside, but I felt sort of naked um, because I, I want to do my part, you know, as a citizen. And it feels, well, not a citizen of this country, but just as a resident of this neighborhood. And it, it felt strange to not be wearing a mask outside. Well, especially in a high density area, I guess that uh, everybody is the danger. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, it, you know, being around other people feels strange and I miss it and and I don't know when this is going to end but uh, it does feel odd sure you seem to have picked a really good time to have a podcast that explains complicated <laughs> things yeah the timing of this uh, is it, it yeah I'm I, listen I used to work in TV and so right now TV production has ground to a halt um, especially documentary TV production. You know, some people are still venturing outside or still filming things. Journalists are considered essential workers. But documentary filmmaking is a lot harder to do right now. Right. And the fact that I pivoted to podcasting in September 2019 uh, feels like it was the right time to, to do that all of a sudden because I am able to work from home currently. Um, and so in that sense, I feel very fortunate and also the fact that this podcast is about technology and science and this is the story of the hour right now with this coronavirus is, is the combination of the two. Um, it does feel like I get to do reporting that is important and useful and helpful. And, and in that sense, that's also uh, I, I do. I also feel very fortunate because of that. Has kind of the mission of Reset changed because of the virus? Oh, I I would love for you to give me your impression about that. Do you think that the show has changed a little bit? I, I actually have a, a theory about an overarching theme of Reset, mm. which I want to run past you. But uh, I, I guess, okay, so so let's start with uh, the parable of the sower, right, which I know <laughs> you're, you're really into. Yes. And it's got this overarching, uh, for, for anyone listening who's not familiar with it, it's this uh, sort of speculative fiction book by Octavia Butler. Mm-hmm. And the, the basically, it's about this kind of tension between subjectivity and community. Mm-hmm. The, the idea of the sort of the individual versus the, the group. And that feels like some of that is kind of infused through reset, that all of the stories are a way of telling uh, how we negotiate the sort of uh, tension between the, the individual and, and community. Is that something that's sort of deliberately in there? Yeah, I mean, I think I think in some ways that was in the DNA of the show prior to the pandemic in the sense that a lot of what we talked about was um, the difference between what is sort of the push and pull between convenience and um, and security, right? Mm-hmm. In, in the sense that a lot of the, the things that encroach on our, on our security and liberty tend to be for reasons of convenience. And I think that that is the individual versus community sort of discussion a little bit, right? You, you can kind of draw parallels there. Mm-hmm. Right now, yes, I think there is a lot of tension between how people would like to protect themselves and what kind of um, 
things and, and activities people would like to enjoy and the good of the community. And I think that that's correct. And, and maybe that's why we have started recently doing a lot more stories about how people live today and doing a lot more stories about the impact of this uh, on on various industries through a tech lens. But very much the stories that we are telling are human stories that, that cover the impact of the pandemic, very much so. Right. Do you think of science journalism as a kind of a subset of political journalism? Oh, that's such an interesting conversation to have. Um, I <laughs> I would argue that for a long time, science journalists did not uh, see that that way. They thought themselves of themselves as being very separate, as not being political. Because science is science, right? Science is not political. Um, or at least that's how a lot of scientists and science writers would like to think of their field. Especially, you know, kind of the old school folks. Yeah, they were just facts. But I think that... Over the years with climate change, um, not that climate change is political. It's not. It is It is fact. It is just a, a thing that is happening in nature. But it is really, really hard to report on science without also talking about politics. And I think that that is something that people were uh, struggling against, against for a very, very long time. And that has now, it, it's sort of impossible to ignore now. And so if you are still a science writer who, who f- sees the world that way, I think you're way behind the curve. Mm. Yeah. You, were, I mean, speaking of climate change, you were sort of the first climate change reporter on American television. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the, I don't know if I was the first climate change reporter, but I was the first climate change correspondent with that official title on American TV news. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, so was that kind of like pushing a big rock uphill, or was it welcomed? <laughs> or, um, I mean, I think a lot of people have. Uh, done a lot of work in the past to make that happen. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it felt strange to uh, be the first person to, you know, solely focus on this with that title to really, because the thing is that, you know, that title itself is, uh, you say you're a climate change correspondent and people just kind of look at you weird sometimes, right? Like mm-hmm. <laughs> having that those terms in your title, at least in the U.S., is is to a certain extent controversial. And the fact that Vice News Tonight and Vice Media as a whole was willing to take that step, that wanted and thought it was important, thought it was necessary, and thought, in fact, that every nightly news show should have a correspondent with that title in their name, that felt important. Right. Um, as to how I was received, I think that some people were extremely happy that I had that title and, and that that our focus was climate change. Um, and some people weren't. And, and that is the U.S. and its view of the of climate change in a nutshell. Right. Because at a certain point, I guess it looked like a slow moving story. And then suddenly Australia's on fire. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and California's on fire, and you right. know, corals are dying, you know, in the Great Barrier Reef, and yeah, all of it is, I mean, I used to say that I was covering the slow-moving apocalypse, but about halfway through um, my work at Vice News Tonight, I stopped saying that, mm. because it didn't feel slow-moving anymore, and I actually think that I was wrong to use that term, and it, it is... Climate change is, is actually quite fast if you if you really take a step back and look at everything that has happened over the last few decades. It's actually been very fast. Right. Does um, the virus feel slow? No. No, it feels it feels fast. I mean, 
I felt like the the month of March felt like it was the slowest month, just from a personal standpoint. Mm-hmm. And then April went by in a flash, and um, I can't believe that we're in May already. But no, this this virus is. Hmm. It could be a lot worse. It could be a lot worse. And I think that this isn't the worst pandemic that I might see in my lifetime, but it is um, it, it, it is it does feel pretty awful. Um, and being in New York City with the high rates of infection and the um, the the deaths that we've been seeing, um, you know, things are, you know, right now <laughs> on this day. Um, the numbers are going down, but they could go back up, and and that does feel quite scary. I think that what what feels um, most significant is just how quickly life has changed. Sure, that's probably what it is. Do you think it can change back? Mm, I don't think it'll go back to exactly the way that it was. It may, you know, maybe in seven years things will feel perfectly normal and exactly the way that they were before. Uh, but I think quite a few things will have to change. I think people will be working, those who can will be working from home for a long time. Um, And I think that the way that offices are laid out might have to change. Uh, You know, open air offices might not be as popular now. Cubicles might make a comeback for all we know. And, you know, the way that we open doors, door handles and having a lot more, in in some ways, this might make the world a lot more accessible and a lot more hands-free. But I think, you know, I I'm trying to imagine a world where I will go back to just willy nilly shaking somebody's hand. And that that seems uh, a little far off to me right now. Sure. And I don't know how we're going to be greeting people. You know, my my family is from is from Montreal. I grew up in Montreal and and there it's two kisses on the cheek. And I was talking to my family recently and saying, you know, Dad, I don't think that's going to happen. And, you know, for a while he was like, no, impossible. We can't get rid of that. That's too important. Like that's part of Quebec culture that is, you know, deeply ingrained. And I was like, I, I just don't think it's a good idea right now. Like, I don't think I, even when when this subsides, I'm not sure that um, that is the, the best kind of greeting, mm. um, at least for a while. Sure. I heard your dad on the podcast uh, since you mentioned him, and uh, mm-hmm. it kind of made me think a, a couple of things. One is about uh, the extent to which you bring your kind of personal life into uh, mm. something like this, mm-hmm. a technology podcast. Um, but but it also made me wonder about that kind of journey, your parents and, and how their journey might have influenced your own. Yeah. Um, so I think th- just addressing your first point, I have been... Um, I've been in my throughout my career I've been very careful about how much I reveal about my family and how much I reveal about my personal life because there have been times where um I was getting harassed a lot online I was getting death threats or rape threats on Twitter uh and this was like I want to say 4 or 5 years ago but it, it had an impact on me sure. um, because I was a woman covering science and and speaking out about sexism in technology or sexism in science. And, and, and there was some backlash from that. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, for a while, I didn't even post pictures of my wife on my Instagram. You know, I, I tried to keep things very, very, very separate. And, and I've loosened up quite a bit since then. Sure. Um, but yes, I... Is that because things so, are better now or... or? Yeah, things are better now. I, I'm no longer the target of that nearly as much. And and also I've sort of unfortunately gotten used to it. So when it does happen, I don't 
get as scared as I used to get. Right. When I say things, I mean the world. Is the world be- a better <laughs> place now or is it Oh, just no. Hardened? It's a terrible place for, for women and queer folks and people of color on the internet. No, I, yeah. don't think the, I don't think the world is a better place than it was five years ago with regards to that kind of harassment. No, uh-huh. okay. uh, absolutely not. Um, but yes, yeah, so I, but with the podcast, I, for the first time in my career, I get to be a little bit more personal. I get to talk about my life a little bit more, um, than I used to. And, and in some ways I was resistant to it at first. It's not like anybody pushed me to do it. It's not Vox style guide. Right. No. And <laughs> I think a part of me wants to do it. I want to have this very personal relationship with my listeners. And I think that they respond to that. And I, I, I get something out of it. When I hear from listeners saying, oh, you know, it was so nice hearing your dad on the podcast or, you know, the, the, I want people to feel connected to me in, in some ways because I think that in my own podcast listening, that relationship matters. Mm-hmm. And there's something about podcasting that sort of allows for that far more than, than it ever felt like it did on TV. Conversational medium? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're also just like you're in somebody's ear. Like you are... It feels so much more personal. When, when I was on TV, it, we also made a point of it never being about the correspondent. Right. We tried to remove ourselves from the story as much as possible and just be an avatar for the viewer. But with podcasting, it is, um, it is very much about you to a certain extent. And so I have opened up my life a little bit more. So Tuesday's episode of this week, my, my wife was on the podcast just in the intro. And that was the, the, the first time that she was actually in an episode. And um, you know, it it feels uh, it feels kind of nice to be able to let her in on that world because she's a huge podcast fan. Mm. Um, so I think she kind of got a kick out of it. And uh, the question about um, your parents and uh, and their influence, right. their, their journey, that influence on your journey. Yeah, I mean, they were my parents have been a huge influence in my life. Um, they are lovely um, academics <laughs> and they very much approach most things in life from that kind of lens which was extremely beneficial for me growing up because we had a lot of intellectual conversations around the dinner table and and they got a kick out of trying to you know we would have had healthy debates around the dinner table and we would try to get to the bottom of things um that was a huge, huge part of my life for sure. Um, and my father is, is uh, he's from Trinidad. He is, uh, an, he's an immigrant. He moved to Canada. That's where he met my mother when they were both doing their doctorate degrees. And yeah, they, <laughs> growing up with sort of the Trinidad culture and the Quebec culture, the Francophone Quebec culture, because I, I am Francophone. Uh-huh. Um was a really nice way to grow up. It was it was it was very very nice. Science specifically? Uh no, actually they're not scientists. Uh they are marketing professors. Really? Or wow. both yeah, they're they're, you know, my father's retired. Um but yeah, marketing professors. Um you know, I think we talked a lot about we talked a lot about politics. We talked a lot about the influence of of you know, we talk about marketing to a certain extent, but we talked a lot about academic life. And so growing up, I actually thought that I was going to be an academic as well, because that's all I knew. I knew of the flexibility of that life. I knew of the internal university politics, which were always fascinating to me. And uh, it, it was very, very attractive. 
Um, I am, however, extremely happy that I did not go down that road. Yeah, as somebody who was a professor until about five years ago, I can tell you it's not what it used to be for sure. <laughs> I bet, yes. I think that, you know, they both had tenure. They were, um, you know, they they came up at a time. And don't get me wrong, it was hard. My mother was, um, you know, is a woman in, academ- in academia and that that's hard. And my father was a black man in academia and then that was hard. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, it wasn't all rosy, but they did come up at a point where it was a lot easier to be... Uh, the The life of an academic was a little bit cushier, I would say. Sure. I, I kind of, to get back to the science communication side of what you do, I feel like there are a lot of people out there who need some kind of serious science communication. There are people who are sort of really angry at Chinese people or telephone poles, but they're, they're not mm-hmm. really reset listeners. How do you bridge that gap? Uh... Hmm. I, it's interesting who, so when I was a climate change correspondent on, on, on TV, I, I knew that I was not necessarily going to be the person to change someone's mind about anything. You know, mm-hmm. when you watch a documentary TV segment about climate change, you're going to take away what you want from it. Sure. And if you're already convinced you're going to say, okay, this is further evidence that supports my view of the world. And if you are not convinced, you will somehow find a way to, um, to, to take a skeptical view of it or go, oh, but, you know, to to nitpick. Um, And so what I have learned over the years, and also what one of our recent guests talked about, Liz Neely, who's a science communication expert for a, a nonprofit called The Story Collider, is that a lot of the way that people change their minds is through the people that they have surrounding them, right? That what you hear in the media and what you read on the news, if you're you know, an avid Fox News listener, that's one thing. But you then also turn, to, you also really care about the people around you and what they think. Mm-hmm. And so if you have somebody in your life that is skeptical of climate change or that believes that 5G cell phone towers are somehow inducing the symptoms of coronavirus as opposed to an actual virus, um, you can play a role in sort of guiding them away from that that thought process and sort of and the way to do that is not just saying you're wrong and here are all the articles that prove that you are wrong because that that won't work. The way to do that is to have a conversation with those people and to take them seriously and to be empathetic and to say, okay, explain to me why you feel the way that you do. And really listen, really listen to the entire thing, all of the arguments, which might be hard. And then at the end of that, you can sort of, what you will most likely hear is fear. What you will most likely hear is a problem with uncertainty and that is those are the threads that you can you can sort of take and use and say you know what i understand why you're scared i understand this is scary and don't repeat information that is incorrect don't don't repeat the 5g but coronavirus thing but you can say here's what these experts that most people trust are saying and that's not always going to work but if you are somebody that that person trusts, it might. And so I think that we all sort of have a little bit of a responsibility within reason to talk to individuals in our lives who may have views that are sort of leaning towards conspiracy theories. Um, that said, I will say that um, 
that those kinds of conversations can be taxing. And I believe that they are really only worth it under specific circumstances, circumstances where somebody might, for instance, be harming themselves or harming others. Um, And so you got to pick and choose your battles, basically, because it's self-preservation. You have to take care of yourself as well. Sure. I want to talk about favorite episodes for a second. And I, I've got some of mine. Sure. Obviously, the OK Boomer Neil Young episode about uh, <laughs> analog versus digital sound. Um, the sample mm-hmm. libraries and pop music, obviously very interesting to me. The, the one about working from home when your job is driving the Mars rover. Um, yeah. But then what yeah. airborne means when it comes to viruses. That mm-hmm. was really interesting kind of uh, analysis. And obviously, lots of episodes about the relationship between technology and, and COVID-19. What have been some of your favorites? Um, you know, I was really proud and happy of that airborne episode. I think that was a good one because um, I think we were a little bit ahead of the curve in, in terms of of having somebody on Roxanne Camsey, who's a good friend of mine, mm-hmm. to talk about, and a science journalist, to talk about what that word means and why it's so controversial. Because what happened after we put out that episode is that a bunch of, of you know, the New York Times was writing about this and and the New Yorker was writing about this, and everybody was sort of putting out an article trying to explain whether this coronavirus is airborne. And the truth is, is that there is a hesitancy to use that term because it is scary. Sure. And public health experts don't particularly like using it, even though a physicist will tell you, well, yeah, it's airborne because, you know, it's in, it's in the air, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is just like a very simplistic view of it. There's more to it than that, of course. There's uh, the size of the droplets. There's the size of, of there's airflow issues. And, this, and right now we are still trying to figure out exactly how airborne this coronavirus is. And that is the, the whole, that is, that is the issue, right? At what point, how airborne does it have to be until we can use the term airborne? Um, is, is very much the center of that conversation. Sure. But uh, besides that, I, I was really, really happy with the um, bookstore episode where we looked at how... Oh, yeah, that was lovely. Yeah, I mean, that, that was something that was personal to me, too. I, I opened up the episode talking about my favorite bookstore in all of New York City, which also happens to be my favorite place in the entire city, just bar none. Mm. It is... Uh, it's called the Center for Fiction, and I it is a place that for a long time I didn't tell people about because I didn't want them to show up there. I wanted to keep it for myself and very selfishly. And then with this pandemic, my view on it changed. I want people to know about this place now. Um, And the struggle of indie bookstores to remain alive, to suddenly try and, and sell books online when the entire point of an indie bookstore is that you don't want to buy the book online, right? You're actually paying a premium to not buy the book online when you're walking into a bookstore because you can probably get the book for cheaper on Amazon. Mm. And talking about what it means for these bookstores to try and make that technological pivot um, was was something that I, I really cared about a lot because... Bookstores and libraries are my favorite places in in the whole world. There's uh, something of the cynic in me that thinks that there's something very uh, deeply American about looking at um, people experiencing, like uh, uh, my bookshop business is uh, is going under, I'm having real problems, and somebody sitting there thinking, I can make a buck out of that. Let's uh, make a service that connects those things together. Do you think that, that that's the sort of the technological drive within, I guess, the sort of the Silicon Valley um, culture of, you know, look at people who are having a, a terrible time and trying to profit from that? Or is that, you know, unfair? Mm. 
Um, I mean, I think with the case of bookshop.org, they actually did launch before the pandemic. So I don't think that 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 particular company is I think they are trying to make money to a certain extent. Um, I think I think a lot of companies that are built around profit are are aimed to, at doing that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think there's something about Silicon Valley where they um, they try and see gaps that other people don't see, and they try to connect certain services. Now, some of it is kind of ridiculous, right? If you really take a look at ride sharing and apps like Uber and Lyft. All they did was create an app that connects a driver to 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 a writer. And, and you can view that as being extremely innovative or you can view that as being extremely simple. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it is marketing. Um, and so I think that, that Silicon Valley is overblown. And I also think that they have done wonderful things. And I also think that they are putting a lot of people's privacy and security at risk. All of these things are true at once. Mm. Um, and, you know... Is it very American to try and make a profit in times of crisis? Maybe. Yeah. Um, I think those people who were like hoarding Purell hand sanitizers um, and then trying to, to sell it at a premium on Amazon, that's definitely an example of that. You know, there are, I think any crisis will sort of is an opportunity for grifters to uh, surface and and try and make a buck. And, and you mentioned privacy and security. That does seem like something in the in the current crisis that we have to make a lot of trade-offs about. Oh, yeah. How do you sort of make decisions about, you know, where the line sits now? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the line, the, the that line has moved. Um, I think that, you know, we, a lot of countries, including the United States, are talking about using uh, Bluetooth, Bluetooth technology to do contact tracing, to trace cases of the virus and so if you walk past somebody who um if you walk past somebody on the street one day and then a few days later that person tests positive for COVID-19 you might get a a ping that says hey you you were in the vicinity of somebody for a certain period of time um that that has tested positive now so you might want to get tested too that idea is interesting is it a huge privacy risks it's it's bluetooth so it's it's sort of hard to to tell how how much of a risk it would be, um, but I think a few years ago or just a few months ago, I would have been like, oh hell no, I would never use an app like that. Um, now the likelihood that I would is a lot higher. Um, I can't actually say for sure um, whether I feel completely comfortable with it, but I think I'm a lot closer to that than I ever thought I would be, and. It's touchy because it's it's health information that will be in this app. And, you know, I, I guess somebody could hypothetically, it'd be a little bit complicated, but hypothetically get that information. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that for the good of the community does come with some privacy risks. There are There's real tension there, for sure. Mm. And that's one example. There are topics that uh, have come up a lot for us, uh, and I guess they probably come up for you a lot. And I, I'm not sure the extent to which you've covered these, but things like ethics in AI, things like blockchain, are these kind of um, these kind of tropes that turn up in, in technology podcasts? Are they of interest to you, or mm-hmm. does it need to be topical in order mm. for for it to really kind of sit? The bar for blockchain for me is really high. <laughs> um, like it's really high. Yeah, and. It's not because it's not being used. When Back when I was at Vice News Tonight, I did an entire segment about how pork was being traced through blockchain. There's a company in uh, Taiwan 
that is doing that. And, you know, it was it was interesting. And the idea that you could pick up a piece of pork at a supermarket, scan it with an app and say, oh, this pig was killed on this date and it received these vaccines on this date and it was fed this much. And, and you know, um, get that information. Some people might think that's interesting. In some ways, I think it's a teachable moment, right? It kind of reminds you that you are eating an animal that mm-hmm. was raised for this purpose. And um, I think that there there are benefits in the sense that people who live in cities are very, very removed from sort of the food supply chain, maybe less so now because of this crisis, but I think people are very, very removed from what it means when they buy a slab of meat at the grocery store. Right. So I think there are benefits from that. Do I really need that information about the pork that I am going to consume? I don't, I don't know. I, <laughs> I was really on the fence about it. Um, it's and and ultimately blockchain like yes it can't be tempered with with once it's in the blockchain sure great awesome but at the source it's a person putting information into the blockchain and so the source can be tampered with because people want to lie all the time yeah um and i'm sure some people will push back on me on that because they will say that there will be checks and balances and that's all great but the 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 bar for blockchain for me is is very very high because it has to be actually being used it has to actually have a benefit and and um i think that right now a lot of things are interesting and could be interesting in the future Mm. um but i'm just i'm i have yet to see something that feels incredibly compelling you know and i'm not talking about currency that is certainly interesting yeah um but when we're talking about like consumer products that people can buy, I'm just not there yet. Um, so the bar is pretty high. AI, we've certainly talked about for sure. I think the thing that, you know, people will, might think feels like, I'm, I might sound like a broken record at this point, but we talk a lot about bias in artificial intelligence. Because again, this is another situation where there is a person who programmed those algorithms. There is a human being and humans have a very limited view of the world. And so one, that's one very good argument for promoting diversity in technology companies. But as long as there's a human that is involved, something will get missed. Mm-hmm. Something is not, it's not all going to be perfect. And so what I push back on a lot is the idea of technology as this um as this silver bullet, as this thing that can pierce through everything and that will be error-free and that is just a solution for for everyone. And I think that that is false. That is largely technology is a solution for the rich and the privileged. And, you know, (laughs) taking that kind of view when you host a technology podcast is not everybody's cup of tea. But um, that is very much how I view it. And don't get me wrong, I'm obsessed with technology. I love it. I am consumer gadget obsessed and it's not necessarily something that I'm proud of, but, um, but that is how I, how I view the world. And a gamer? A gamer? mm, I, I play Animal Crossing and I play like Pokemon, uh, uh, on a Nintendo Switch Lite, but I'm not really a gamer. That counts. Yeah, it counts. I just, you know, I haven't been, I, I haven't been playing video games, um, every day for years uh, the way that a lot of other people have. Mm. I definitely have an interest. I used to, um, 
you know, back when, because we had a computer in my house my entire life. I On MS-DOS, I used to play, you know, Commander Keen. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I loved my Sega console when I was a kid. And I loved playing, uh, you know, The Lion King and, and Sonic Spinball and those kinds of games. But um, I kind of dropped off in my teen years and early 20s. And I'm now finally getting back to it. And it does feel good to get back to it. You're also a classical guitarist. Do you compartmentalize that sort of creativity music side of things from the science journalism side or, or do they work together in some way? Hmm. Um, <laughs> so weird to be called a classical guitarist. I did. I, I do play classical guitar and I do actually have a degree in, in classical guitar, um, but I, I haven't I don't play that much anymore. And that is one of my biggest regrets is um, that. I, I sort of stopped playing it after I graduated and got that degree. Mm. And I think I think I needed a break. I think I had been running myself really ragged because I, I did a double degree at the time yeah. uh, in health sciences and classical guitar. And this is in CGEP, so this is, I just so it's not like I have a bachelor's degree in music. I have a CGEP degree in classical guitar. CGEP is something in Quebec which is in between high school and college. And it's usually two years, but because I did a double degree, I did two degrees in three years. Uh-huh. So it was, you know, pretty intense. Um, and I think I needed to take a break, and I, my break was too long. And now when I pick up my instrument, and it is staring at me in my bedroom, um, I feel an immense amount of regret and sort of... Because you lose those skills if you don't use them over time. You can get them back. But I, I haven't dedicated the kind of time that I should to my instrument. And so I, I don't play nearly as much anymore. Do you think of it as work or as play? <laughs> um, I get a, a... I think I'm competitive by okay. nature. And so work and play can kind of... They mix a lot in my life. Right. Um, so that's that's interesting. Yes, it is. It is play. But when you know that you used to be able to do something that was not really great, I was never a great classical guitar player. But when you know that you used to do something that was good, um, it is hard to, to on the ego. Probably this is really this comes down to an ego issue okay. um, to to sort of start at the bottom again. And so I need to get into the right mindset to do that. But I have continued with music to a certain extent. I, I recently purchased um, a few months ago an OPZ synthesizer from by Teenage, Teenage Engineering. Engineering. Yeah. And I have so much fun with that thing. Um, it is it is such a blast. Um, and I think it suits my personality more in some ways than even than classical guitar ever did because I get to create music in a solitary fashion um and i get to try a lot of things without people ever knowing that i made something that was shitty until i'm ready to hear them let them hear something that is uh passable and so i think i think i'm i'm very much like that i like learning in private i do not like learning in front of other people Um, that probably has something to do with the fact that i'm dyslexic okay and um i think that i have sort of I have difficulty not being um, showing maybe showing weakness and and being um, not perfect right off the bat. And so I always prefer to do things on my own. 
uh, you know, even even during my classical guitar lessons, you know, my teacher would like show me something new and I would do it a few times in front of him. But really, I just wanted to run home, practice for hours and hours and hours and then come back and show him that, like, hey, I'm, I'm good at this now. Yeah. Um, I didn't like having to demonstrate what he just taught me in front of him when I hadn't when I felt like I hadn't been given the opportunity to succeed yet. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm at. Sorry, my dog is barking. That's fine. Absolutely fine. I'm surprised mine aren't. So I guess uh, this is you outing yourself as the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder? Oh, yeah, absolutely. 100%. That's that's definitely me. No, but Breakmaster Cylinder did create uh, our theme music. And yeah. I, I am very, very happy that they did because I think they're incredibly talented. Um, but no, I, I, I do think that science and art does mix. I think that was your original question, right? It was, yeah. I absolutely does mix. Um, I believe that one of the best ways to communicate science is through illustrations. Um, you know, there are, there are science illustrators who do such wonderful work in comics. Comics and science have gone hand in hand for a long time. Just thinking back to, you know, a very classic comic, the, the swamp thing, um, is all about science and, and a science experiment and, and where memory can be stored in the body. Mm. Um, that is the origin story of the swamp thing, which people may or may not know. But I think that that there is a lot um, to be said for using art to communicate science. And maybe, and you know, ultimately when you make music, it's, it's, just, it's just air being pushed around, right? And that's just physics. Right. When it comes to podcasting, journalism, interviewing, broadcasting, is there anyone you look to and think that's kind of who I aspire to be? Hmm. Oh, uh, there are people that I admire deeply. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in terms of their writing, I, I, I would love to write like Ed Yong at The Atlantic in terms of their podcasting. I think that Rose Eveleth at Flash Forward is fantastic. These are people that I happen to have had on my podcast, and sure. they're also friends of mine. Um, but there are people that I admire deeply for, for the work that they do. Um, but I stopped a long time ago imagining somebody as, you know, that is the career path that I want to follow. And I think it's because I've bounced around from medium to medium so much. You know, I used to be a writer. I, I moved to TV and I knew that I loved audio. And so I decided to go host a podcast. Um, and I don't know what will come next. I might, I certainly hope that I will stick around in podcasting for a long time because I really do love it. Mm. Um, but I think I like switching things up. I like um, learning new things more than anything. I love learning new things. And so I don't know anybody who's had my career path, you know. I, I don't know anybody who has done... Um, I mean, God, maybe the closest one, and this is a very rough comparison, is, is Rachel Maddow in the sense that she um, worked in radio and then went to TV hosting. But I have no interest in, in hosting a, a nightly news show where I sit behind a desk every night. That, sure. that does not appeal to me, um, at least not right now. Um, and so, no, I, there, there isn't like a somebody that I look towards, a single person that I look towards in terms of who I admire. I think it's a, it's a, it's a compilation of people. Finally, I guess, uh, what do you hope for Reset? What's the kind of the, the long-term objective? 
I want us to make people feel things, which seems so basic uh, to say. It's such a very basic principle. But I want people to feel something. I want people to... um, I don't think that technology is very often about empathy. Mm. And I would like that my podcast to change that. I very much would like Reset to be a podcast where people learn about how other people live and learn to appreciate their struggles and admire their ability to perhaps overcome those struggles. And um, yeah, I want to make the most human tech podcast you have ever listened to. Uh, And because ultimately, like, I think... I think that is the mistake with tech journalism is that is that it does not feel very human. Those human stories don't get told nearly as much as they could be. Um, and th- those are the stories that I'm interested in telling. Fantastic. Ariel, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for your time, Andrew. I really, really uh, enjoyed this conversation. That's Ariel Dermros, the host of Reset, your new second favorite podcast. The MTF podcast is out every Friday, so make sure you subscribe and the next one will just turn up all by itself with no further effort on your part. Reset comes out three times a week on Tuesdays, Thursdays and Sundays. And like this show, you can get it anywhere you listen. That's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to share, like, rate, review or just tell someone about it in your next Zoom meeting, which can't be too far away. And I'll catch you soon. In the meantime, have a great week and stay safe. Can I get a later nerds? (laughs) Sure. Later nerds.